2018, a study showed that nearly a third of all top-grossing Hollywood films are prequels, sequels, reboots, adaptations or franchise entries. This number has doubled in the last decade. There seems to be a growing trend that is moving storytelling away from the dangers of originality towards the safe harbour of that which is familiar. Why take a chance on a new property where Hollywood can reboot Batman again? Why champion an original idea where the big screen will beckon cinema goers to a seventh paranormal activity? Been a few years, time for another Terminator 3? Remember that really old movie Back to the Future? Maybe people will flock to see Justin Bieber's Money Fly travel back to the 80s in a Hummer. So, in a day and age where Hollywood is playing it safe and taking less chance on the untested, how do filmmakers find a way to balance a new idea with something familiar? Can it be done? Or is it doomed to failure by leaning too far one way or another? This week on Film Rhapsody, Russell and I take a look at this trend and how it affects our upcoming horror feature, Alice. I'm Dan Sanguinetti. And I'm Russell Lee. And welcome to Film Rhapsody. So here we are in the age of the remake. After years of corporate-run Hollywood, of executives seeing only the bottom line and ignoring creativity for a bigger box office, we find ourselves in a day and age where the chance of seeing something truly unique seems slim to none. And yet we're spoiled for choice. Gone are the days of three commercial and two non-commercial networks in Australia. Each network now has at least three channels on the air. We have Foxtel with close to 100 more choices, and let's not forget Netflix and Stan and now Disney Plus, and that's just Australia. In the United States, there's Hulu and HBO and a hundred others. DC and World Wrestling Entertainment have their own streaming services now. We could literally drop ourselves down on the couch, tune into one of these many options, order in from Deliveroo, and never have to leave the warm glow of our screens ever again. Forget about being one step closer to the Wally future, we're here, minus the floating deck chairs and drinkable hamburgers. And yet with each passing year, Audiences complain of unoriginality in their storytelling. They say the filmmakers are raping their childhood, recycling the same stories over and over. This year's X-Men Dark Phoenix was an almost exact carbon copy of 2006's X-Men The Last Stand, albeit with a hot young cast and even less believable CGI. And while it was universally despised and considered a franchise killer and a flop, the movie has gone on to make more than $250 million at the box office. That's the kind of flop most filmmakers would dream of. We complain about the death of creativity on social media yet we flock to the cinema to see films we already know we'll hate. Are we paying to see these films so we can better complain about them online? Have we forgotten that the suits don't care if a movie is creative void as long as it makes money? And when we pay to see them, we're only sending them the message that they're right, no matter how many unlikes we give them. I'm not innocent in all of this. In some ways, I feel like the biggest hypocrite of them all. See, I grew up loving sequels. When the credits began to roll on a film I loved, I hoped that soon I would see another part. I didn't care that Freddy was finally dead or that Marty Fly had a happy ending. I wanted to see more story, damn it. And I'll be the first to admit that I enjoyed the big screen remake of the A-Team and thought the reboots of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th were... okay. My issues with some of the characters notwithstanding. But now, I'm on the other side of the screen. As a writer of a big screen feature, there's a responsibility on my shoulders to make sure I deliver a script that balances the familiar with the original. The Alice script needs to be good enough to bring in an audience and then send them away talking positively about the film so more people will check it out. On top of this, I need to deliver a script that will bring back a profit for our investors, but also show the industry I possess the kind of skills they'll want to invest their money in, and thus grant me my goal of writing for a living. 
all of this isn't an easy thing to do. When I conceived of Alice in 2016, I leaned heavily towards the familiar, the 1980s slasher films I loved as a child. I didn't think too much at first of originality, but the more I fleshed out the story, the more I saw an opportunity to do something different. The world had changed a lot since then, it was both bigger and smaller. We had grown to accept a lot of things since then and tried to move past others. So whatever I wrote was going to end up different by the simple fact of the passage of time. But I took it as an opportunity to go back and rewrite the world into something a little more ideal. Yes, Alice is a throwback to the 1980s slasher films, but you're willing it'll also be an 80s period piece. But where it differs is in the setting of the world. In a way, the world of Alice and the town of Alexandria that it takes place in both froze in time in 1987 and yet progressed towards a 2019 ideal and sensibility. I think this is something that makes Alice unique and sets a movie apart from other remakes and sequels. But at the end of the day, whether I'm successful or not, falls to the audience. So now comes the question of how do we promote our small Aussie horror feature against the rest of the world? How do we get people to give a damn about our little movie that on the outside looks like something they've seen a hundred times before? How do we get them to give us a chance and show that beneath the surface, Alice is a unique take on a familiar idea? I must admit, probably from the outset, that a lot of the answers to the questions that you've uh, put forward there, we probably don't know yet. Um, I think it's part of the discovery that we've got to go through as uh, as producers and, and filmmakers. Um, I mean, I learned quite a bit uh, from marketing, me and my mates, for the zombie apocalypse. And there's a number of regrets and, and things that I wish I could have got right in marketing that film. Um, and I'm sure that that is going to contribute and uh, dictate and inform what we're going to do with Alice. Um, so I don't expect us to simply you know come come up now and say here are all the answers and here's all the things that we're going to do and it's going to be amazing and it's going to work and we're going to make lots and lots of money and it's going to turn into a franchise and you know we're successful filmmakers be nice we would oh, of course of course it would be and because i can tell you about part three right now yeah well that's the thing is is one of the things that we've made as part of our discussions is that this is not just a single film we've got ideas of a franchise and part of what we want to do with Alice is to make it franchisable um, in, a, in a way that audiences can connect with the characters and find that there is more interest in that well for starters this podcast was supposed to be the first I guess salvo in the promotional campaign you know we get the, the story out we talk about how it came about we show the process we meet the people involved we make it a personal connection to everyone and and this is also the the, the idea behind the podcast comes from um already established ideas of podcasting promoting the production of a film that was uh kevin smith back probably five six years ago with red state he um basically did a lot of what we're doing. He promoted the movie, he spoke to the cast and crew, and um, yeah, he, he got the word out of this indie film that he was making. I thought it was interesting when I was looking on Twitter earlier uh, today, um, I saw Elizabeth Banks tweet about her new film, Charlie's Angels, mm -hmm. and it was actually what got my attention about um, the film was the fact that she said that, oh, well, I guess a bomb is a bomb at least I got to make something. I think that's kind of what the tweet was. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't quote it exactly. But what that led to me was kind of looking into a bit more. I mean, could I have predicted that Charlie's Angels, the reboot, could I have predicted that it would bomb? Yes. And the answer is yes. 
And I think the simple question there is, who wanted a Charlie's Angels True. remake? Like, what what is the reasoning behind wanting to make a Charlie's Angels film? And I think we can connect that more directly with, why would we want to keep making Terminator movies? Oh, to get it right, maybe. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, True. Um, but I think what the, the thought process led me to in, in trying to find a little bit more, I came across this really great article that I think is so relevant to our journey right now because we're in the position of Elizabeth Banks right now. Elizabeth Banks wanted to make a Charlie's Angels film. She did not consider once if the audience wanted to see a Charlie's Angels film. And I don't think the marketing really helped. It, it didn't look like it added anything new. You know, by her own admission, at least she got to make something, which is kind of, kind of crazy to think. I mean, Elizabeth Banks is an incredibly successful filmmaker. She's done amazing things with Pitch Perfect and she's one of the powerhouse of female filmmakers in, in Hollywood and I admire her work completely. Anyway, let me go back to the article that I read. So this article was on Forbes um, and it was written by Scott Mendelson who um, is quite a, um, a big contributor to the film industry um, in, 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 in Hollywood and LA for Forbes. Um, and he wrote, when audiences don't care about your IP and when interest is driven not by the moviegoers but by the studio or the filmmakers, a franchise revamp is potentially riskier than an outright original. I find that, I find that really interesting because the fact is, is nobody out there has gone, hey, Dan and Russell, we want to see a horror film from you guys. Like, yeah, like, I don't think there's anyone who actually has asked us to make this film it's us going we want to make a film so how do we get an audience to want to see it and it, it, it's, it's a sort of a very interesting thing i'll read you another bit three weekends in a row we've seen franchise continuation and revamps that existed not because audiences wanted them but because studios or filmmakers wanted them and presumed that they can convince audiences to show up audiences didn't want a sixth terminator film a sequel to the shining or a third Charlie's Angels. And the crux of their marketing appeal rests entirely in the alleged strength of those brands. So looking at it from our perspective, the brand that we've got is is the 80s horror films. And so one of the things that we've got to analyze is how do we get people to want to see something that has got that 80s throwback? And we, we can point to directly a number of successful examples in the more recent time. Stranger Things for one. Stranger Things. Um, Thor Ragnarok, for example. The other thing as well, which Scott brings up in his article here, is the Jared Butler Fallen series. I saw the first one. Um, I know of the other two. There's the other two. And they just um, announced three more films in that series, um, which is really interesting because he, he, um, he compares in his article the Rambo films. Because by the time that the Fallen series has reached the six films, that would match up to how many Rambo films there would be. Um, In a far shorter time too. That's right. And and, and interestingly, um, you know, Last Blood exists because Sylvester Stallone wanted to make another Rambo movie and convinced investors that audiences still cared. Even though it's been a decade since the last one, did that do any... No, it flopped. Yeah. And probably three didn't do too well either. Yeah. So there is some... Key things that we need to take home over this idea of, you know, it's great to work with familiarity, but there's got to find that key marketing 
Hawk. I think on one hand we have one strong thing with the 80s nostalgia. People aren't sick of it yet. But on the other hand, you know, is it too familiar? Is it not familiar enough? There's that dip, that, there's that balance we've got to find. Now, I'll, I'll read one more paragraph because he really, really gets this well. Like, he tight, he's got this concept tight, which is so relevant to us. Thank you, Scott. Yes, sometimes you can successfully sell audiences on long-dead franchises or ideas but for every halloween or jurassic world we've got an independence day resurgence which essentially is the same movie but without will smith and then you've got a men in black international which is basically the same movie without without will smith Smith. and then terminator dark fate which Which is the same movie without will smith (laughs) it is mind you i've not seen dark fate so i can't really comment i didn't think it was too bad but that's kind of the thing it flopped i went in with such low expectations james cameron must be pissed because he keeps backing it it is the third attempt for a new trilogy. Well, you, you also have to count in the fact that um, there was a TV series that essentially was Terminator 3. Which ironically was was, it was better it was, ideas. Th- for it was amazing. Movie, and they, yeah. like the, the idea of Skynet going back to preserve its existence was an, a really cool idea that they probably should have gone for. I, I, th- I do think it's interesting in his article he does bring up about Doctor Sleep. The, the sequel to The Shining, um, how that's not done well. And I, don't, I think on that level of marketing, it's to do with more the fact that I don't think anyone knew it was a sequel to The Shining. And then the fact that did anyone actually want a sequel to The Shining? Stephen King did. Well, Stephen King did. And I think, I think that's, that's a, it's where we've got to sort of settle on this thing is we want to make this film. Mm. We want to tell this story. We believe in it. We think it's a valued story and yeah, has but a place. It's useless and pointless when it comes to the fact that we finish the film and then we expect audiences to feel the same. Yeah. So a big part of our marketing has to really focus on what are the audience needs. Yeah. We need to convince an audience that they actually want to see Alice and the story that we have uh, put together. Since Russell and I recorded this chat about a week ago, I think we both settled on how important it will be for us to approach the marketing of Alice in a realistic and dynamic way. One of our goals is to continue this conversation here on Film Rhapsody as that marketing plan comes together. As we've said a number of times, these Alice Chronicles are a big part of us being transparent as independent filmmakers as we navigate the sometimes treacherous path of feature filmmaking. Now, we move on to our next segment in this episode where I invite filmmaker Carl Emerson to join me on the mic to discuss his latest short film venture. Carl and I have been working together since 2016, where I've had the privilege to be his mentor as he's pursued his interest in filmmaking. The relationship that we have developed together has been rewarding and enlightening. It has allowed me to discover more about what we can all accomplish, no matter the barrier. Carl is an inspiring young man, and I hope that our chat is one of many that I will share with you here on Film Rhapsody. For those who only may be hearing about the work that we've been doing together for the first time, why didn't you sort of introduce yourself and tell us about why um, pursuing filmmaking interested you? Well, um, my name's Carl Emerson. I am a... I, I don't know if there's any particular avenue of filmmaker. done a bit of directing, a bit of screenwriting, a bit of editing. As for uh, why pursuing filmmaking interested me, um, uh, it, it more that's just sort of where I wound up. There's no, um, There's no journey behind it or anything like that. It's just sort of... It's sort of the hole I fell into and figured actually this is this is probably this is probably the way to go. As a filmmaker who lives with autism, what are some of the difficulties you have come across in endeavors to develop your filmmaking skills? And what are some of the things that have you done to help you overcome them? I imagine it's 
there's been some challenges. The most prevalent one is when editing things and having to use headphones like the ones that we're wearing here now. When I'm editing something, because my hearing is very particular, it, it sounds sensitivity is not an uncommon thing with, uh, with people on the autism spectrum. So I'm always editing at a particular volume set that I can work with because it's not just a matter of do not like loud noises. It's a matter of hearing things that people aren't meant to be able to hear. And that's never a fun time. High frequency, low frequency. So then I don't even know if I'm editing the thing to the right volume for the people I'm editing for. I'm just sort of working to my own specs. And I, th I think that's a really interesting thing considering that for some time now you've been also running a radio show at 2XX, is that correct? Yeah. So how, how's that work? Well, I, I started at that while I was 16 in college because uh, Canberra College and Narrabunda College back then were doing sort of a collaborative radio show program and um, one of my teachers mistook me for somebody else and invited me on there and um, I, I got the training and more or less carried the program for a couple of years there before spinning out into my own show, The Ozone. Okay. Um, and, and so you do that, that's regular, like a weekly thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sunday is 1 till 2 p.m. on 2XX, 98.3 FM. So, in fact, that makes you much more experienced behind a microphone than ever I am. I mean, we're, I've only been doing this podcasting thing for a few months, um, but you've been doing this for years. Uh, different people have different levels of experience. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't have that sort of filmmaking story of, you know, a camera, my brother, a bunch of just filming things. There's no story like that. There. Yeah. We, we wind up in these spots, yeah. you know? Well, I think that's really cool. And I think that's that's quite special that you've been doing that for the time you have. Let's move more on to sort of the film projects that we've been working on. It's the end of 2019 already. Um, but back in 2018, we made a short film called Airlock. Um, which was made for folks on ability. It happened very quickly. We've talked about it at um, numerous uh, conventions before and presentations and things like that. I wanted to sort of break down some things that you felt about Airlock and how it's reflected on you know your process and your the journey we've been going through as we've moved on to our new project. Um, so is there three things you can think about from airlock that you feel really proud about in no particular order um i think the first one is less one thing more the complete shebang as you said it happened very quickly we only had 30 days to make this four minute short film with solid like set construction we had to find actors peter rossini had the seizure um a solid mm. vfx space station all of that just sort of came together with a good day or two to spare. Yeah. Um, and just elaborate a little bit more on Peter Rosini. I mean, I am very fond of Peter. I've known Peter for years, um, and you're very good f friends with him. Tell, tell our listeners a bit about Peter. So Peter is, well, he's an actor with a particular intellectual condition. I've, I've known him for a few years now. Um, we hang out from time to time. We were going to get him on airlock, but the night before he did have a seizure, mm. which... Um, he got over, which is good, and he was still able to get to focus on ability in uh, Sebastian Chan's bus trip, which won the uh, best creative film. Okay, so that was th that was the first thing. So, what's another thing you're proud of about Airlock? Not unrelated to how well everything came together within 30 days, was just how quickly we sort of figured out. Right, we want to make a short film. This, this, this science fiction. What if it was, you know, playing on the sort of alien on a space station thing? And everything just sort of everything just sort of jammed together within about an hour. It was really quick. Okay. And what's the third thing you're really proud of? Uh, just just that just that it was able to be done, really. So the result of that film 
um, you won best screenplay at Focus on a Billy, which, yeah, which I think is an incredible achievement and one that I'm really proud. It that was it was a huge it was a huge sort of thing because I had I had no idea they only chose the category at all only if, what a, a week or so in advance and the script wasn't really the script wasn't the key part of the story yeah. that was um that that was really just you know the finished film more than anything the script was one part but uh, suddenly. Mm. suddenly here we are um and because of that we're on to our new film two graves yeah that's right um and and it, and i mean winning that award was a bit surreal you weren't even sure if you actually won it i didn't i didn't know like i again usually nominees are told of this stuff beforehand i yeah. just sort of rocked up to sydney because i thought you know what we put the film into this what the hell let's mm. just uh, sit down and watch some of the other things yeah i had and no idea any of that was no coming. no i mean it was a, it was a quite a surprise it, it, Really nice surprise. And then they played us on TV in, uh, what, February? Yeah, that's right. I think it was on Foxtel. Which I don't have, so I had to go all the way to uh, Bruce, to an eccentric cat lady's house. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that was fun times all around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as a result uh, so of the award, it came from the Australia's Writers Guild who were involved in the judging of the, f- the film. Oh, so it's not proper screenwriters and things. Yeah, then. yeah. And so, um, and that's how Jamie Brown, um, AACT nominated writer, um, got involved in uh, the project. So he gave you a mentorship over a couple of months to help develop a new film, a new short film, which we've talked about before, Two Graves. Um, but this is, I guess, I think this is the first time on this podcast that we're talking about it. Or really since we entered production. We did a Kickstarter for it and that yeah, it was, was pretty successful. successful like $6,000. Yeah, and we've got, we've had other other things moving forward on it and there's a few more applications that were put forward hopefully to get it moving forward. We don't know. We'll see what, what happens there. But um, let's talk about the writing process. So what was it like being mentored by Jamie Brown, being that he is, uh, you know, AACT nominated, he works on a numerous... Uh, TV shows, he's done some big movies. What was it like? Well, as you can guess from what you just said, he was pretty busy. So most of it was we would here at the office go and work on bits of the script. We'd send him every revision each week or so. And then every few weeks we'd have a proper conversation check-in. Here's what something why this works, why this could work better. What's another sort of what's another avenue that this line of the story could take with some greater payoffs, things like that. But definitely the mentor part, the mentor part was more of like, I think a spirit Obi-Wan Kenobi sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And which was really possibly the most helpful part of it that I was able to really evolve all this stuff on the ground. Yeah, no, I, th- I connect with that because uh, I, I do remember a few times him to saying to you, you, you know, trust yourself. You know, you're doing a good job. You're writing really well. You need to, you know, believe in the force. I kind of got that sense from Jamie and I think that's a nice analogy to sort of connect with the way that mentorship was working well, for you. Well, because he's all the way off in Melbourne. We yeah. couldn't exactly just catch up, yeah. have a coffee from time to time really. Um, was there anything else you can remember that in your experiences with Jamie um, when developing the film? That it's sort of carried on since the, the mentorship's really finished but we do, um, we do occasionally throw an idea around with conversed over Skype off hours, me and my mum and him at my place. Um, We've had a particular development in the script story, which I've been going back and forth to him over via email, been trying to catch up via Skype, but he's he's very busy, so it doesn't always work out. 
moving on a little bit, um, what has been the most challenging aspect of writing the script so far? Writing a script for a story, really, mm -hmm. because as I said with Airlock, that was more that was more just one part of the film. This entire piece is much more story driven. Again, Airlock was sort of we have a great idea, now we need to do a script this time around because this whole thing came from the Writers Guild in the first place. It was probably writing for real, which is well above, you know, college wrote a couple of just little scripts for no apparent reason aside from just to test the software. Um, but this was the first real solid, proper professional script. And um, all in all, I think that for, for that, it's, I'm, I'm really proud of how it's come out. Yeah, no, no, I am too. I think the script is very tight, very special, and the characters are pretty, pretty amazing. And another I'm key challenge is always, mm. you know, whenever because we've had a few different revisions on this. There's always a great idea, like you think there's a twist, and then suddenly, oh, what if we could twist this twist into a third twist? Mm -hmm. But then it means you have to go back all the way and make sure yeah. that everything stays tight. Yeah, no, no, I, and I think you've handled that really well, um, and I, I believe that I think the confidence that. Jamie gave you um, in, in the, the development process has allowed you to explore those different ideas. I think that's definitely something that I've, I've noticed and I think that's really amazing um, and something you should be really proud of as well. So I, I believe the characters that you've written are what they say is sort of, sort of uniquely familiar, but they are original creations by you. Uh, at the same time, they draw closely to established Western tropes. Um, what do you think makes your characters sort of a fresh take? on those sort of cliched, established cliches. The fact that we're sort of, we're aware of the cliches as we've been, these characters have been evolving with the script. We started with, say, our main character, Jackson, being sort of like a revenge father, and our man in the black mask is sort of that more mysterious, he comes, then he goes, sort of evil reverse Lone Ranger sort of costume thing. And then we figure out, so wait, what if this or this, and then, you know, on the other hand, this, and then suddenly we're, we're looking at the characters and we're realizing, okay, maybe maybe this guy is not as nearly as good as he'd looked right at when we first saw him, or maybe maybe with this other with this other fellow, you know, we haven't seen a lot of him, but maybe there's that little key bit to him that's more than meets the eye, or Clint Eastwood is the good and the good, the bad and the ugly, but his first appearance in that is ro is rope slipping scams with Eli Wallach or like um, Fistful of Dollars. He saves the day, but he only needs to save it because he was playing two crime families against each other and now everyone's in trouble. And the, the fact that, you know, the Spaghetti Western in a way helped blur the lines between good and evil in the, the cowboy films. I mean, the characters became much more greyer instead of black and white. There are no Lone Rangers in those films. Yeah. There's just a um, few people doing the more dubious elements. So it's not just the knowing the tropes, but knowing how to slip between them yeah. and see what sort of new or unexplored ideas we can shovel out of that. Now, um, with the project, we've been very purposeful in our timing by essentially not rushing the film and showing that you are ready to move to the next stage. Um, what would you say is the most daunting part of taking the script to production next year? Um, I mean, we were planning to shoot this year and it was clear that we needed more time um, because the ideas needed to be a little bit refined in regards to the visuals and part of the production design. You know, what is the thing that you're feeling most daunting, daunted about? Um, but also what is the thing you're looking forward to the most? So it, it's really more or less, I don't, I don't want to say the same thing, but 
shooting the film and then the finished product are both incredibly daunting going forward and also what I'm quite excited for just you know being there filming something on set and then having this finished product but being thorough enough to really do justice to what we've been working with under Jamie and for everyone else involved so mm. yeah and, and the crew is only going to get bigger it has so much potential yeah and that's why it's so daunting as well yeah yeah because you've met with um cinematographer Aaron King um and you've you've sh- sort of shared a bit of the ideas and thoughts you're going but we haven't yet got into that deeper this is what the shots are going to look like and that's part of the process you're doing right now with the storyboarding which are in 3d which is handy because i couldn't draw to save my life yeah uh, yeah we discovered this really great app that we've been using probably two months we've been on storyboards for two months unfortunately but you've 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 really progressed well with that and And there's so much room to be thorough even every bit of the character's fingers can move Mm. but then that leads to a certain level of precision that makes things a bit complicated too yeah, but it's it, easier than drawing. The yeah. end result will be quite clear for Aaron to look at and for the rest of the crew to get a sense of what the project is. They understand your vision, um, and I think that's going to be really great and a good opportunity for you to, you know, explain it in in words as well. So you've got some visuals to connect with. But I'd also like to see what other ideas they have in turn. Yeah, that's right, and I think the storyboarding app will allow you to manipulate and grow that if there is those sort of suggestions and things down the track. So what advice would you give other filmmakers who live with a disability, who want to follow their ambitions in filmmaking? Um, As you know, I I do work with um, a lot of people who are on all sort of stages of their career, from first-time filmmakers to people who have been doing it for a long time. What advice would you share? This is a moment for you to sort of become a little bit inspirational for some people because I, I, I'm, I'm very much aware that people do enjoy your work and look forward to seeing Two Graves, um, you know, reaching its completion. So what's, what, what do you think you could say? Okay, so this is, uh, this is obviously a little bit personal now that now there's getting into that, but you used the word inspiration. I was going to say, I don't want to say anything that's really, really token, but mm-hmm. there is that sort of token inspirational disability person that... Um, like it, it's not it's not quite true it's like mm-hmm. the blind lady at the gym that's not inspiring it's the whole it's the whole sort of the whole shebang as for that little advice you can't really wait for something like this to come around if you want to sit around and wait not in sort of like a, a really pushy way or a token do nothing way mm-hmm. because it is incredibly daunting that can be a huge showstopper for people like me that just like just like any good thing out there if you just wait for it it might not come so um despite how daunting it is the opportunities that have come from it can be really really good so you have to just go out there and find it yeah just go out there and do it i i believe that's a a wonderful advice you can you can figure out which which rope to take further down the line but suddenly like when you start you can find that niche to work in and everything and and i i can support that in that there are always people out there who are willing to help um, so you, you, you're never alone. You're never like solo. You never have um, uh, this this thing about oh, I've got no one to help me achieve something. There is always something, someone there who will help you and guide you. You just got to find them. I think that's probably the 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 big step forward that you've got to find is is who, who can help. And it just takes you saying, hey, I'm here. You know, give me a, give me a go. And and there are people who will always put their hand up and try and. Um, give you a hand also to adapt that's yeah. the i was hoping to keep it brief but that's a 
that's a key bit. Whether it's the particular sounds that humans aren't meant to hear, the more crippling social elements, other other particular areas like someone who is blind, perhaps. Um, the easiest way to figure this all out is to do it in your own way as well. So don't be afraid to adapt like that. It's um, it, it's easy enough to find that little hole to fit into that. Now, um, as we move into production of Two Graves over the next few months, would you like to come back and share a bit more about what you've achieved and um, give a bit of an update for us and tell, tell us a little bit more about the process that you've achieved so far? Sure. Hopefully yeah. the storyboards are finished by then. But Yeah, well, maybe we'll be closer to production. I know we've got some locations to, to lock in and, and we've got a cast reading coming up that we've got to um, finally lock in and make happen. So... Hopefully there's a lot of progress to share and, and people um, are interested and are excited for the project going forward. Yeah. Again, it's daunting, but it's also really exciting too. Thank you for your time, Carl, to, to talk with us and share. And I, I know people appreciate listening to you. So um, until next time, um, thank you. And um, thank you for having me on there too. That's all for this episode. Next week, international screenwriting guru and all-round nice guy, Karel Seegers, steps into Sanguinary Media to sit in the hot seat or one-on-one with Russell Lee. You've been listening to Film Rhapsody. Film Rhapsody is produced by Dan Sanguinetti and Russell Lee for Sanguinetti Media. Head to sanguinettimedia.com.au to subscribe to all our episodes. Oh, I didn't record it.